from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast. This is Alyssa Carroll, and I am your host and the creator of at serial underscore killing on Instagram, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they display their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. This week's podcast will be a special one that I've been promising for quite some time. It will be about which serial killers were operating at the same time, and I've organized it from between the years of 1960 and 2000. And for the sake of time, I'm limiting it for now to the United States, being that we here have cornered the market on serial killers, so to speak. I've also narrowed it down to about 25 serial killers as well. I tried to pick the more famous serial killers that were operating in similar areas for organization and continuity. Also, this took an incredible amount of time to research and organize, so perhaps my grammar with regards to past and present tense will be back and forth and lacking and so on, so I apologize for that ahead of time. In the future, I promise I'll do one for serial killers outside of the U.S. to be fair. So let's begin with the basics. What is a technical serial killer? They are typically a person who murders at least three people or more over a span of time, not in quick succession. They are also labeled a serial killer when the murder they commit is usually due to an abnormal psychological gratification. The term, quote, serial homicide was first used in 1974 by FBI Special Agent Robert Ressler while giving a lecture at the Police Staff Academy in Bramshill, Hampshire, England. However, the concept was sort of conceived by a German criminologist named Ernst Gennat, who described serial killer Peter Curtin as a serial murderer in 1930. And yes, I I have a podcast on Peter Curtin. There are a couple of different schools of thought, but the most common one that I also personally subscribe to is that there are four different classifications for serial killers. There's mission-oriented, visionary, power and control, and hedonistic. I'm going to list some of the more famous ones as examples, but again, different sources put them under different labels, so this is just the general consensus of which these particular individuals fall under. So, mission-oriented serial killers feel as though they are on a mission to rid the world of a specific type of person that they deem unacceptable. This can include people of a different race, sexuality, religion. They could target the homeless and, as we see quite a lot, prostitutes. 
They tend to be highly compulsive and plan their murders out meticulously, and yet they usually have steady jobs. They live within the same area for long periods of time and have a stable home life. Some mission-oriented serial killers are Dennis Rader, Gary Ridgway. I have podcasts on both. So to kind of explain it a little more, Gary took more issue with his victims being prostitutes than the act of the intercourse itself. So then we have visionary serial killers, and those are people that basically have psychotic breaks from society. They often believe they are another person or perhaps compelled by some entity to kill, like God or the devil, which is referred to as God-mandated and demon-mandated. They tend to be a lot less organized than other serial killers, picking their victims at random based on logic that doesn't make sense, and are generally much easier to find and apprehend. Examples of visionary serial killers are, of course, David Berkowitz and Herbert Mullen, both of whom I have podcasts on. Power and control serial killers are the ones who experience great sexual pleasure from the control that they have over their victims. They literally get off on the whole process of the murder, the stalking, the capture, the terror on the victim's face, the torture during the act. Most of these serial killers are patient and they take their time to prolong the sadistic fantasy. Simply, it's the literal, complete control over when and how they get their victims, as well as the treatment, the death, and the sexual release in that moment. And this type of serial killer is known to revisit the dead bodies after they initially completed the murder, and sometimes for quite a while. Some examples of power and control serial killers are Edmund Kemper and Ted Bundy, and again, I have podcasts on both of those men. And then finally, we have the hedonistic serial killers. And these include women who are labeled black widows or family annihilators. They often get an adrenaline rush, a thrill from killing. They kill for personal gain, such as money and so on. They kill people who annoy them, and they often find it amusing to think that they are outsmarting the authorities. They often have an ideal type of victim who fit their specific criteria. Sadism is common in this type of serial killer. Some examples are H.H. Holmes and Eileen Warnos, and again, I have podcasts for both. Now, you will see definite arguing within the experts in this type of criminal research about the categories and who fits where, but you get the idea. So, let's begin. In the early 1960s, we see the Zodiac take his first victims in the Los Angeles, California area. We also have 15-year-old Edmund Kemper murdering his grandparents in North Fork, California, on the edge of the Sierra National Forest, somewhat near Fresno. In 1967, Rodney Alcala enters the scene, raping and nearly killing an eight-year-old little girl in Los Angeles. In 1968, we see the Zodiac move up to the San Francisco area and begin to kill. 
1969, not only is the Zodiac continuing to kill, but now he has called the police from a payphone to confess his crimes. And we also see him begin to mail these cryptic letters into various newspapers, including ciphers to decode. Also in 1969, on his 21st birthday, Edmund Kemper was released from the Atascadero State Hospital into the hands of his mother in Santa Cruz, which is south of San Francisco, unfortunately. He stated in interviews that it took no longer than three months for him to start having the dark and disturbing fantasies again. In 1970, the Zodiac famously gets a pregnant and young mother to pull over her car, stating her wheel was about to fall off, only he loosened the lug nuts, so when the wheel completely fell off, he gave her a, quote, lift just to start threatening her. She, of course, grabbed her baby and jumped from his vehicle. After this, the Zodiac faded from the spotlight, only continuing to send letters to the media, which stopped in 1974. Then we didn't see the Zodiac after that. In 1972, Edmund Kemper begins to kill college co-eds around Santa Cruz, dismembering them, humiliating their corpses, and then dumping their remains in a wooded area. Also in 1972, that same year, Herbert Mullen begins murdering people in the same area as Edmund Kemper around Santa Cruz. His first victim, he drove past a transient male in the Santa Cruz Mountains. He stopped, pretending his car was acting up. So this transient offered to help and Herbert beat the man to death with a baseball bat and left the body where it lay. Both Edmund Kemper and Herbert Mullen continued to kill people into early 1973 in Santa Cruz, making it very difficult for the authorities to investigate. On February 13, 1973, Herbert Mullen was finally caught and arrested. Then on April 21, 1973, Edmund Kemper bludgeoned his mother to death. He decapitated her and he humiliated her corpse. He then invited one of her friends over and murdered her as well. He at first fled California, but then once he hit Colorado, he stopped. He called the police in Santa Cruz from a payphone and then awaited his arrest. Now here's an interesting story about Herbert and Edmund. I love this story, so I have to share it. They were in prison at the same time. They were in jail at the same time and in prison together. But while in jail, their cells were right next to one another. Both were interviewed by a Stanford psychiatrist on the same day. Now, keep in mind, Edmund is six foot nine inches tall. Herbert was just five foot nine inches tall. The interviewer said Mullen was as you would expect. He was a slight man, lost in his delusions about how his parents' evil influence over him and homosexuality and the Bible and earthquakes. But with Edmund, he said it didn't go as smoothly. And we all kind of know Edmund as a calm guy, quite the talker, a very good interviewee. But he said that Kemper told him, quote, if I went apeshit in here, you'd be in a whole lot of trouble, wouldn't you? 
He said Kemper then stood up so that the man could get the full idea, the full view of just how big Ed was. And then he went on to say, quote, I could screw your head off and place it on the table to greet the guard, unquote. So apparently, Edmund accused Mullen that he had been stealing his dump sites. But regardless, in an interview, Ed called him Little Herbie. Got great pleasure from calling him that. Ed stated that other prisoners would catcall Herbert on his way back and forth from the showers, which upset Herbert very much as it would. Ed noted that Herbert was a, quote, little wimpy guy who hates big guys, unquote. So Ed draws on his years of therapy at Atascadero State Hospital and begins being kind to him, and he found out Herbert loved peanuts. So Ed bought like all these bags of peanuts, not being a fan of peanuts himself. He asked Herbert if he wanted some peanuts, to which Herbert excitedly said yes. So Ed gave him peanuts. Thus began the behavior modification therapy. Ed did this regularly for a while. Also during this time, Herbert spent hours writing at his desk, preparing speeches. Other inmates would want to watch television, and Herbert would then loudly recite his speeches about how horrible TV was for you, and so on, or singing loudly, interrupting the other inmates. Ed began his experiment. He rewarded Herbert when he was good, as in giving him peanuts, and he punished him when he was bad, such as throwing a cup of water on him. I'll add a link to Ed's interview where he actually speaks about this method. He, he gives you the whole story. It's really entertaining, actually. I highly recommend watching it. I'll put the link down in the podcast notes. But anyway, back into it. Staying with California, and while there were other serial killers in that area nearly all the time, we are sticking to my list, and things were a bit quieter until the late 70s, when Kenneth Bianchi and Angelo Biono, a.k.a. the Hillside Stranglers, entered the chat in the Los Angeles area. They began abducting young women, raping them, strangling them, and dumping their bodies on the hillsides in L.A. in 1977. Also during the late 70s, Rodney Alcala returned to the L.A. area after being in New York, which we will get into, and began murdering young women by strangling them or bludgeoning them. His first victim after his return to L.A., he strangled her with her own pants. He smashed her face in with a rock and threw her down a ravine in the Hollywood Hills. So throughout 1977, the Hillside Stranglers and Rodney Alcala were operating in the same area at the same time. But also in 1977, our Vampire of Sacramento entered the scene, Richard Chase. His first murder was a drive-by shooting. In 1978, Rodney Alcala was questioned with regards to a Hillside Strangler case and was dismissed as a possible suspect. Around the same time, Richard Chase murders a pregnant woman. He then raped and mutilated her corpse and continued on killing, cannibalizing some of his victims. Thankfully, Richard was finally caught on January 27, 1978. 
but we weren't so lucky with the Hillside Stranglers. And also this year, Rodney Alcala appeared on the dating game show. He won, but the woman just had a bad feeling about him and declined any further contact. In early 1979, Kenneth Bianchi, one of the Hillside Stranglers, knowing the heat was on him and his partner in crime, escaped to the very northern part of Washington, pretty near the Canadian line, and then attacked two women, killing them. Thankfully, he was arrested the next day. However, Rodney Alcala was still free and murdering innocent girls, mostly teens and even one 12-year-old girl on her way to her ballet class. Four days after that, Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris, aka the Toolbox Killers, killed their first victim in the Los Angeles area. So now the Toolbox Killers and Rodney Alcala are working at the same time. Finally, on July 24, 1979, Rodney Alcala is arrested under suspicion of murder and he was no longer free. The toolbox killers kept on killing though, once taking two young teen girls at the same time. They raped and tortured the two girls for two days, then killed them by strangling them with coat hangers, twisted ever tighter with pliers. By November of that year, both men were finally arrested. Our next California serial killer on my list is Richard Ramirez, committing his first murder on June 27, 1984. He broke into an elderly woman's home and stabbed her to death in Los Angeles. He laid low for about a year, then began breaking into homes to burglarize them while also murdering the occupants by either stabbing them or shooting them and killing them. As Richard was killing in 1985, so began the serial killings of Lonnie Franklin in the Los Angeles area. In August of that year, Lonnie picked up a young woman and shot her in the chest, killing her. Less than a month after that, Richard Ramirez was arrested. Lonnie Franklin, too, was quiet for about a year, but in August of 1986, he began killing women again by shooting them in the chest and then stuffing their bodies under mattresses with trash to be discovered. This continued into 1987 and 1988. One victim in 88, he shot a woman through the heart. He dumped her under a mattress in an alley and put a napkin over her face that read, quote, AIDS. And then he went dark for a few years, though we don't really know why. Now in 1992, serial killer Keith Jesperson, who was a truck driver, raped and strangled a woman in Blythe, California, which is near the border of Arizona, kind of in the southeast corner of California. He later wrote to a newspaper in Oregon about it and signed it with a smiley face, something he'd be later known for. He killed another woman in California the next year. And that's what I have for California. And you know as well as I that that was, by no stretch of the imagination, even a dime in the bucket of serial killers who worked in California. But we do see that a few were indeed working at the same time in the same areas. 
So let's move on to the Pacific Northwest, so like Washington and Oregon. In early 1968, as the Zodiac seemed to move from Southern California up to the San Francisco area, our boy Jerry Brudos begins to murder. His first victim was a young lady selling encyclopedias door to door in Portland, Oregon. He brought her inside and into his garage where he hit her with a two by four, then strangled her to death. He then dressed her dead body with several different undergarments from his personal collection as he loved women's underwear and shoes, and he took some photos of her. He then cut off her left foot, he put a high heel on it, and then he kept it in a freezer in his garage that his family had no access to, of course, and then he dumped the rest of the body over a bridge. His next victim wouldn't be until later that same year. He strangled her, then raped her dead body. He then took her body home and kept it hanging in his garage from a pulley system where he dressed her in various undergarments as well as having intercourse with her remains. He then made a resin mold of one of her breasts and then tossed her body along with the foot that he had had in his freezer in a nearby river. He continued murdering young women throughout 1969, but one girl out of the few did manage to escape him during his attempted kidnapping. Finally, in May of 1969, Jerry Brudos was arrested. Five years later, on January 4, 1974, Ted Bundy would attack his first confirmed victim. He broke into an 18-year-old college student's apartment in Seattle, Washington, where he sexually assaulted her, then beat her nearly to death. She survived, but suffered extensive brain damage. Less than a month later, Ted Bundy abducted a 19-year-old female while she was walking to a concert. He killed her, disposed of her body in the mountains, but removed her head and stated he cremated it at his girlfriend's house. Bundy continued to murder an astounding amount of young women throughout 1974, mostly in Washington, but he did wander south into Oregon as well. He left most of his victims' bodies in the mountains where he could revisit them and have sex with their bodies over and over until he could no longer tolerate the decaying and disintegrating remains. In later 1974, Ted Bundy would move to Salt Lake City, Utah to go to law school, but he also killed at least four women while there. He then migrated over to Colorado and in January of 75, he abducted a 23-year-old female from his own hotel hallway he was staying at in Snowmass, Colorado, northwest of Aspen. He killed her and left her remains on a dirt road near the hotel. Bundy went on to kill two women in Colorado. Bundy went on to kill two more women in Colorado, then traveled to Idaho, where he abducted and killed a 12-year-old little girl. All of this by the end of May 1975. In June, he kidnapped a 15-year-old female who had been attending a youth conference at Brigham Young University in Utah. He buried her body near Provo. 
Not even a month later, we see Robert Lee Yates begin his life as a serial killer. On July 13, 1975, Robert Lee Yates shot and killed a male and female college student who were picnicking by a creek near Walla Walla, Washington. Now, due to legal troubles and, you know, having to escape jails and whatnot, Ted Bundy's career of death had been, let's say, interrupted for a few years. But he made his comeback in January 1978 when he broke into, attacked, and murdered several young female college students in Tallahassee, Florida. But we'll come back to Florida in a bit. Who we do see take over the Pacific Northwest in Bundy's absence is the Green River Killer, a.k.a. Gary Ridgway. Gary would take his first victim on July 8, 1982, by abducting a 16-year-old female and strangling her with her own clothes, leaving her body on the Green River near Tacoma, Washington. And with that murder, Gary begins murdering young women, mostly prostitutes, at an incredible rate, often more than one a month and sometimes three throughout 1982, 83, once picking up a 19-year-old prostitute with his very young son also in the car. He drove her to a secluded area. He told his son to stay in the car. He took the female in a wooded area where they had sex. He then strangled her. He returned later and continued to have sex with her body many times. Her remains were found over two months later. Gary Ridgway continued to murder women, picking them up in Tacoma or Seattle and dumping them either near the Green River or sometimes around the SeaTac Airport, a few other places throughout 1984. We see a quiet year in 85 as far as we know, but he picked back up in 1986. Then Gary Ridgway was eventually arrested in 2001, pleading guilty to murdering 48 women. In January 1995, Keith Jesperson picked up a girl in Spokane, Washington. She nagged at him to hurry up and get to Indiana so she could be with her boyfriend. So, he raped her and strangled her. He then tied her body underneath his semi, face down, and drove off. Two months later, Keith choked his fiancée in Washington State and killed her. He was questioned but released, and then he headed to Arizona. There were some suicide attempts, but on March 30th, 1995, Keith Jesperson was arrested. Now remember Robert Lee Yates, who had laid low for several years, began killing again by shooting a 23-year-old prostitute in the head in Northwest Washington State, and he left her body in a rural location. He then went quiet again, but picked back up in June of 96, then shot and killed a 39-year-old prostitute and left her body near Spokane, Washington. Robert continued murdering prostitutes in and around Spokane throughout 96, 97, and clear through 1998. He liked to shoot his victims through a plastic bag that he put over their heads. Finally, in April of 2000, he was arrested for murder. And again, folks, we all know there were a lot more serial killers in that area, 
But let's move on to the northeast section of the U.S., most importantly, around that New York area. So, in the later 60s, there was already a serial killer in the New Jersey, New York area that, after researching this podcast, I now see just how prolific he truly was. On October 28, 1967, Richard Cottingham saw a 29-year-old woman at a shopping mall, abducted her, and took her to a field where he stripped her. He tied her up and he strangled her. Her nude body was left in her car to be discovered in New Jersey. That same day, he saw a 12-year-old girl walking home from band practice. He took her and strangled her to death. He then seemed to go quiet for two years, but re-emerged in 1969, killing an 18-year-old female in Hackensack, New Jersey, and again three months later, a 15-year-old girl. He then stopped for a while, as far as we know. So remember Rodney Alcala? After attacking and nearly killing that 8-year-old little girl in 71, he then fled from Los Angeles up to New York before he could get caught. He wasted no time in committing his first official murder there. Rodney, who was going under a false name and working as a photographer, gained entry into a 23-year-old airline stewardess's apartment in New York City, where he raped and strangled her to death. She was found in her apartment. The next year, in April of 72, Arthur Shawcross talked a 10-year-old boy into going fishing with him. Instead, he sexually assaulted the boy, repeatedly hit him in the head, and then strangled him. He then supposedly removed the boy's heart and genitals and ate them. Arthur returned to the body a few times to repeat the assaults near Watertown, New York. The boy's remains were found five months later. And during that same year, Arthur Shawcross abducted an eight-year-old little girl, murdered and mutilated her. But someone saw him walking with her and he was arrested. So then Arthur was in jail for a while. He'll, of course, make a comeback. But then we see the rise of the son of Sam, a.k.a. David Berkowitz. During the summer of 76, David Berkowitz began pointing his gun into cars with people or couples parked and hanging out inside and shooting them. His first victims were two women sitting in a car. He shot them both. Only one survived. David continued to shoot people through the summer, fall, winter, and into the new year of 77. Then in May of 77, David sent a letter to the New York Daily News mocking the authorities. The next month, David approached another couple and shot both of them, but both survived. Eleven days later, Rodney Alcala murdered a 23-year-old young woman whose parents owned a famous nightclub and was Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr.'s goddaughter. Her remains were found buried on the Rockefeller estate in New York. But then after this, he returned to the Los Angeles area. Finally, in August of 77, David Berkowitz was arrested in Yonkers. 
Then we see Richard Cottingham reemerge four months later. He abducted, raped, tortured, beat, and fatally strangled a 26-year-old woman in New Jersey. A little over a year later, he assaulted two women in the Travel Lodge Motor Inn near Times Square. He raped, tortured, fatally strangled, decapitated, removed their hands, and then set them on fire. After this, Richard's murders accelerated rather quickly. From early 1980 throughout that entire year, he killed multiple women. In May of 1980, Richard Cottingham hired the services of a 22-year-old prostitute. In the hotel room, he began to torture, sodomize, beat. He bit her breasts and slashed at her skin with a knife. Other people staying at the hotel heard her screams, called the police, and he was thankfully arrested while still at the scene. Now, Arthur Shawcross, who had been arrested, came back into the fold because he was paroled from prison for the murder of the two children. Remember, he had served 14 and a half years. He and his girlfriend moved to Rochester, New York. It was April of 1987, and it did not take him a year to reoffend. Arthur propositioned a 27-year-old prostitute. For whatever reason, she bit his genitalia. In March of 88, he strangled her into unconsciousness. He then bit her genital area. Once she regained consciousness, she began calling him names. He strangled her until she died, and he dumped her into the Genesee River. Her body was discovered nine days later. Exactly a year later, a new serial killer, Joel Rifkin, brought a 25-year-old prostitute back to his mother's house. He slept with her, then bludgeoned her in the head and strangled her to death. He then removed her teeth and fingerprints. He dismembered her and threw the remains away all around the New York City area. Arthur Shawcross was also killing sometimes two women a month by this point. Joel Rifkin began 1990 with murdering a 29-year-old prostitute by bludgeoning her in the head with a table leg. He then dismembered her and placed her in cement, then dumped the remains in the Hudson River. He stayed quiet for a year, then murdered a further, at least three more women in 1991, and then another seven in 1992 and three more in 93 before he was pulled over for not having proper plates on his truck and the body of his last victim was found inside. He was arrested then and there. And that was the Northeast. It of course goes without saying that that is clearly not an all-inclusive list, but it gives you an idea. And now to move on to Florida. Oh, how we love Florida. So, with Ted Bundy on the run from the Northwest region, having escaped prison, he arrived in Tallahassee, Florida, where, on January 15, 1978, he broke into a sorority house in Tallahassee and murdered two female students, then attempted to murder two others who survived. He then went eight blocks away and bludgeoned a 21-year-old student, but she too survived. 
Less than a month later, he abducted a 12-year-old girl from her junior high school in Lake City, Florida, assaulted her, and strangled her to death, dumping her body near Sewanee River State Park, 43 miles away. On February 12, 1978, Ted Bundy was arrested in Florida at the Alabama state line. It would be 11 years later, in Florida, that Eileen Warnos shot and killed a 51-year-old male after picking her up for prostitution. In 1990, Eileen would go on to murder another five men in a very similar fashion. And she wasn't the only serial killer in Florida that year. Starting in August of 1990, Danny Rowling began breaking into young college women's apartments where he would rape, murder, and mutilate their bodies. He would sometimes decapitate them and pose them, even facing mirrors. One day, he broke into an apartment and waited for a young woman to get back home. He grabbed her from behind, he taped her mouth shut, bound her, cut her clothes off, and raped her. He then rolled her over and stabbed her in the back repeatedly. He then decapitated her and posed her while placing her head on a shelf. In September of 1990, Danny was arrested. In November of 1990, Eileen was also arrested. And that's Florida for now. Moving on to the Midwest, while the Zodiac, Ted Bundy, Arthur Shawcross and others were operating, John Wayne Gacy began killing. On January 2nd, 1972, John Wayne Gacy picked up a 16-year-old male from the Greyhound bus stop in Chicago, Illinois, saying that, you know, he could crash at his house for the night and he'd bring him back in the morning. The next day, claiming he thought the youth was coming at him with a knife, he attacked the teen. They fought, and Gacy stabbed him multiple times in the chest. He then buried the body under his house. This was his first, at least confirmed, victim. Two years later, Gacy murdered another victim that he could not identify, other than he strangled him, then stuffed him inside his closet. But while being stored in there, fluids leaked out of the body. After this, Gacy began stuffing rags or other things in the throat of his victims to prevent this. Nearly on that exact same day, we see Dennis Rader enter the serial killing scene. On January 15, 1974, in Wichita, Kansas, he broke into the Otero family home while some members were still home for the morning. He killed the father, the mother, and strangled two young children. Three months later, Dennis Rader broke into the home of a 21-year-old female and stabbed her to death. Six months after that, a Wichita newspaper received a letter stating they were the one who killed the Otero family. In 1975, John Wayne Gacy takes another life, burning the body under his house in Chicago. But then in 76, that's when his frenzy begins. He killed a further, at the barest minimum, 10 more young men, burying them beneath his house. In 1977, both Gacy and Raider each killed two more people. Only curiously, on December 30th, 1977, 
Gacy abducted a 19-year-old college student from a bus stop at gunpoint. He took him back to his house where he, like all his victims, raped and tortured the teen. He then repeatedly dunked the teen's head into a bathtub of water, but then curiously let him go. He was questioned by the police regarding the victim he had let go, and Gacy admitted to having, quote, slave sex with the teen, but that everything had been consensual. No charges were filed. The next year, Dennis Rader sent a poem referring to one of his murders at a local Wichita newspaper, and this becomes something that the BTK killer would be known to do. The next month, Dennis sent a letter to a local TV station claiming responsibility for more victims. The police finally announced that there is a serial killer on the loose. Gacy was also very active in 78. He lured a 26-year-old male into his car and immediately chloroformed him. He took him home. He tied him up in some device hanging from the ceiling, then raped and tortured the man with various objects while continuing to chloroform him. Gacy then dumped him in Lincoln Park in Chicago. The victim suffered permanent liver damage. He reported Gacy, and there was no investigation at first, but finally they issued an arrest warrant. Panicking, but not able to stop himself, while he was awaiting his trial, he continued to kill, only now he was throwing the bodies into the De Plains River. Nearly on the same day as Gacy was disposing of a body into the river, Jeffrey Dahmer killed his first victim. June 18, 1978, in Bath, Ohio, Jeffrey Dahmer killed him by hitting him in the head with a barbell, then strangling him. He dismembered the body, stripping the flesh from bone, then smashed the bones and threw them out into the forest. On December, on December 11, 1978, Gacy offered a job to a 15-year-old male in a pharmacy. The teen left with Gacy, who took him to his house. He handcuffed him, raped him, then put a tourniquet around the boy's neck and left him to die on his bedroom floor while he took a phone call. Nine days later, and knowing he was under intense surveillance, Gacy admitted to murdering boys and men to his attorney, stating they were, you know, just male prostitutes and hustlers and liars, and he buried them under his house because they were his property. December 22nd, 1978, Gacy was arrested for murder. Now, five months after Gacy was arrested, Dennis Rader broke into the home of a 63-year-old female and waited for her to return, but then decided to leave. He later sent her a letter to let her know that he had been there. And then he dropped out for seven years before striking again in 1986. Now, in September of 1987, Jeffrey Dahmer, having not been successful as a college student or a soldier, settled in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and he finally gave into his fantasies and lured a 24-year-old male to a hotel. And while highly intoxicated, he beat the young man about the chest to death. He dismembered the body in his grandmother's basement and disposed of the remains. 
The next year, Jeffrey would kill another three young men. One more in 1989, but his fever pace began in 1990. Once in September, Jeffrey Dahmer met a 24-year-old male in front of a bookstore and offered him money for sex and photos. Once he got him to the apartment, he met the same fate as the others. He kept part of the young man's bicep in his freezer. He then bleached the bones and painted the skull. In 1991, Jeffrey killed, dismembered, consumed, put in acid, bleached, and preserved the remains of a further nine victims. And then on July 22, 1991, Jeffrey was arrested. And finally, we move up to Alaska. I can't leave out Alaska. On July 5th, 1975, Robert Hansen abducted a 22-year-old female from Seward, Alaska, and he murdered her. He didn't kill again that we know of until 1980, where he killed at least another four women. He killed another two women in 1981, and then in January of 1982, Robert Hansen bought his Alaskan bush plane and thus began his M.O. of picking up women, flying them into the Alaskan wilderness, forcing them to strip and run from him as he hunted them like big game, shooting and killing them. Finally, in June of 1983, Robert Hansen kidnapped a young woman. He took her to his house where he tortured, raped, he kept sexually assaulting her. He then took her to his plane, but she escaped before he could take off. She flagged down a truck driver and contacted the authorities. That October, he was arrested. In less than 20 years, another very famous Alaska resident would pick up the reins as a human hunter and began his career as a serial killer. We know him as Israel Keys. So, guys, as we see, there would be no way for me to cover every single serial killer that we are aware of in this podcast. We can see that there were several that were in operation at the same time, and some very much in the same areas. And it was very interesting to see who was working at the same time, regardless of what area of the country. It really puts things into perspective, or it it did for me. At some point, we will move this along to see if we can see some theories on either why there was such a dramatic rise in serial killers during these times, or if there have always been the same basic percentage of serial killers based on population. But tell me what you think. Leave me a comment on Instagram, at serial underscore killing, or a comment on the YouTube channel under the same name as this podcast. Consider becoming a sponsor and helping me to be able to bring more podcasts more often. Be safe.